This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chiniki. We acknowledge the Satina, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. Welcome to the Dave Leary Show. Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast, brought to you by Freedom's Path Recovery Society in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember that these opinions that are shared are those of the individuals and not of any agency, organization, or other entity, unless otherwise specified. Also, if you're a minor, please check with your parent and or guardian as you need to have permission to listen to these podcasts. We will potentially talk about violent subject matter, sexual content, and difficulties human beings face on their day-to-day lives in recovery. Our guest tonight is Eve, and I am going to let you introduce yourself because you and I have just met. Like basically for the first time, but except for online. But yeah, yeah. Um, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Eve uh, Giftius. I'm 25 years old. I'm a student at the University of Calgary, okay. and I'm currently studying psychology. So I just um, had the opportunity to run a study and write a paper about the study. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very small scale study. It was about five participants, and um, the study was about the. Um, the coping mechanisms that former addicts have found to be the most helpful throughout their recovery. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, cool. I did this study as part of a um, a qualitative a qualitative research class. Yeah. So qualitative research is um, it's more about talking to people. It contains more interviews, and it doesn't. Mm. It has less numbers in it. Okay. So yeah. um, sorry. Can we edit that? Sure. Okay. Sorry, I didn't explain qualitative research very well. Um, so qualitative research is um, it's more about interviewing people rather than just getting raw data. So yeah. you still deal, deal with numbers, but you get to talk to a lot more people oh, and okay. uh, get their personal experiences yeah. more than just a yes or a no on a survey. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for this class, we, we got to actually go out and do our own study. We got to pick our own topics. So it was very interesting. That's very cool. What class was yeah. it? It was called Qualitative Research Methods. Oh, yeah. perfect. Well, perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so okay. for this study, um, we had to start with uh, with looking at past research. Mm-hmm. So there's been an abundance of uh, of research on coping mechanisms for people struggling with substance um, dependence. Mm-hmm. So I found some really interesting articles, and I kind of wanted to start with those. Sure. Um, so two of the articles that I found uh, talked about structural differences in the brains among people who struggle with um, substance de- substance mm-hmm. dependence. So those people are more likely to become substance dependent than their non substance dependent counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, I found this very interesting because we don't have a lot of studies that actually go out and talk to people and ask them how they're doing. And we have more studies just kind of focusing on what helps, but Mm -hmm. we've also found that there are structural differences. So it seems that we should be asking. Like structural in terms of like the neurology. Yeah. 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 So, um, for, uh, one of the studies found that the, um, there's differences in how the nucleus accumbens function in people who struggle with addiction. So Mm -hmm. that's the part of your brain that, uh kind of activates your reward system. So it 
it functions a little bit differently in people who are more likely to become dependent on substances. Really? Yeah. Do, do they do they describe how differently it acts? Or um, they do describe how differently it acts. I'm not very well versed in it, if okay. I'm being honest. Um, yeah. But yeah, Honesty's that's the best policy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so there are um, that that study in particular actually found that pharmaceuticals can be very helpful because it helps kind of put that balance back in, mm-hmm. and it helps kind of get them to an optimal level of functioning. Yeah. Where they're not having their the need to to somehow consume something to to trigger that uh, that yeah. reward system. Yeah. So um, other studies found though that uh, multiple interventions were extremely important. There was one study that looked at a mindfulness-based intervention as well as um, transcranial stimulation. So that's mm-hmm. when they do a electrodes non-invasive, and, yeah, electrodes and yeah. throw some waves in your head and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that helps a lot with uh, depression, but apparently it also helps with uh, with addictions when it's paired oh. with another method to help it as well. Yeah. Um, another study found that uh, social supports was incredibly important. Mm-hmm. And then another study found that harm reduction was very important. Mm. So as you can see, there's a ton of different methods that help. And when you start going through it, it can be very confusing as to what's the best method for people who are struggling and where do you where yeah. do you even start when you have all these different studies telling you different things. Mm. So my goal with uh, with all of this was to actually talk to people who have already walked the path, see what helped them the best and mm. kind of get their stories and uh, and uh lower the stigma surrounding everything when we when we get that human experience Mm -hmm. yeah and i would imagine that the human experience of it like uh is there a reason why the studies haven't done more interview type research on it like i I think off the top of my head what i was thinking when you were describing it i Mm -hmm. was like oh i know why they don't do that they don't talk to us (laughs) because we lie we lie a lot like i mean especially if we're still practicing Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say we lie. We don't always lie all the time. But mm-hmm. when I when we're practicing, we tend to live in lies, like one lie to the next, right? Kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I'm wondering if maybe that's why they stick to facts versus like like interviews. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if that was even evident for you as you went along. Um, as I was going along, I um, it wasn't necessarily evident. That could be one reason why. But I think. Um, in my personal opinion, I think the main goal is to just get people back to a place where they're healthy mm-hmm. and they're functioning really well rather than kind of getting in the nitty gritty mm-hmm. about why, because that's something that you would look at more in a, in a counseling setting. Yeah. But for me personally, I think it's I think it's really important to understand what somebody went through in order mm-hmm. to understand how to better help them going forward rather yeah. than just having, oh, well, ten this helped 10 people, so it's going to help 10 more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although that is kind of what's been done. Yeah, like exactly. in terms of treatment, right? Like treatment mm-hmm. options through the years, um, and I think this is what's happening more and more is that if something does work ten times for mm-hmm. ten people, people assume it's going to work for everybody. Exactly. Right, and that's yeah. obviously a fatal assumption. Like that's not the way it is at all, right? Because mm-hmm. ten, as you said, is a small number, like yeah, um, of the population. So, do you have like data from larger studies, like based similarly oh, yeah. on what you were doing? Um, kind of thing? No, I, I couldn't. I honestly couldn't find any articles. And it, it could just be I wasn't looking at the right databases and whatnot because yeah. I'm limited to what we have at uh, at the University of Calgary. But um, I couldn't really find any studies that were talking directly to people. Mm. The five studies that I just uh, spoke about, they um, they were all very large scale studies. Yeah. yeah so. OK. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I'll just kind of. Uh, jump into what we did here. So I had um, I had five participants and they were aged 24 to 59. 
Um, all of them were um, former addicts that were currently in recovery. Okay. And um, uh, we did a, we just sat down and we did an interview. It was a three question interview. Um, and I wanted it to be kind of as open as possible and just mm-hmm. everything that the participants wanted to say and everything that they wanted to share was what they shared. Um, and for this, uh, for this, uh, paper that we had to do, we had to include something called a reflexivity statement. Mm-hmm. So it's just a part of a paper that kind of talks about who the researcher is. So who, who I am, and it talks about any, like my background and why I might be biased on this topic mm. and what I did to avoid that. So I'll just kind of say a little bit about uh, me and why I might be a little bit biased. So I did know all of the participants to some degree. Um, there were some participants that I had never actually spoken with prior to this, but mm-hmm. um, it was a family member of mine who reached out to them. Um, some of them were friends of mine. So that was one way that I might, may have been a little bit biased. Um, ah, okay. And I myself am actually uh, a former addict. And oh, okay. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what got me kind of on this path in psychology and going back to school. Mm-hmm. And what you were saying earlier, that was what got me very interested in this research question I found in my own recovery that sometimes a method would be pushed on me that yeah. I didn't like or it wasn't working for me, but mm-hmm. that's, that's what works, so that's what we're going to do. So I kind of wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of that. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit about me and... Kind of oh, how I'm glad. I got here. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to know that. I did not realize that. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome. You're amongst friends. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so to go through, after all of the interviews were conducted, um, I did something called thematic analysis. Mm. This was uh, what we what we were all supposed to use as a standard for the paper. Um, so what thematic analysis is, is um, you kind of go through all of the interviews. I'll just, I'll give an example here. If yeah. I was going through the first interview and I saw that somebody mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous, I would pull that and I would make Alcoholics Anonymous a code. And then as I went through every time it comes up, I put that under the same code. Mm-hmm. And then I do the same with all of the other interviews. Oh, okay. So you kind of watch for different themes that are emerging and then you'll have one theme and then sub themes within mm-hmm. that theme. And it ends up being a little bit messy, but it all comes together yeah. at the end. Oh, I bet it does. Yeah. So after, um, after I did the, uh, the thematic analysis, I wound up with, uh, with six themes mm-hmm. and all of these themes had sub themes. So I'll kind of jump into them because this was the results of the, yeah. of the paper. Um, so the themes were barriers, clinical support, self-support, support through others, reasons to stop usage and helpful approaches to recovery. Um, so the first theme, self-support, was basically um, any mechanism that participants utilized that did not involve others. Mm-hmm. So, um, sorry, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit here. Go wherever you need to go. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so whenever I was uh, whenever I was doing this coding, I used a very liber- liberal approach. So let's say, for example, going off of uh, self-support here, if somebody was speaking to me and they said that they felt they didn't have any outside support because they didn't utilize a resource, mm. but they utilized a family member for support, yep. I considered that self-support because yep. that was what they said and that's how they felt. Mm-hmm. And for somebody else who didn't use a family member or an outside resource or anything like that, that said that they did self-support, mm-hmm. I considered that too. And the reason that I did that instead of using a very conservative approach and making my own decisions on where I was going to cut things off was that I feel that recovery is very, it's very specific to you and it's Mm. what you define. And I didn't want to be the one to define somebody else's recovery. So Mm -hmm. just bear in mind that. Yeah, for sure. Going through all of this. Um, So anyways, back to uh, self-support. 
So in self-support, we had uh, two sub-themes. The first one was admitting to having a problem. Mm -hmm. So this was for 40% of participants. Um, one of the most important steps in their recovery was admitting to having a problem in mm -hmm. the first place. And they couldn't begin their journey until they stopped and realized that they yeah. had this issue and then went forward with it. Mm -hmm. And then the, um, the other sub-theme was support through self. So this was, again, not reaching out to any resources mm -hmm. and not or not reaching out to any friends or family. Yeah. So that was that was a little bit surprising to see that mm -hmm. some people were able to kind of do that because yeah. I would imagine that would be very difficult. Yeah, because not all families are interested. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Or supportive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and then the um, the next theme, which was support through others, this was defined by the use of support through friends, family, peers, community, okay. anything like that. Um, and then three sub-themes ended up emerging here. So the first one was use of community support. Mm -hmm. So this was defined by any participant's subjective definition of community. Mm -hmm. um, and 80% of participants defined that as important in their recovery was their personal community and yeah. having a group of friends that were in sobriety already. Mm -hmm. um, and then another sub-theme that emerged here, 60% uh, of participants spoke to this. It was the use of support through others in recovery. Mm -hmm. So people who had already walked that path that they could kind of depend on and talk to while they were struggling. And then the last one was uh, use of support through family. And this was 60% uh, of participants were fortunate enough to have mm. the support of their family helping them out. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. I'm surprised it's so high. I was surprised that it was so yeah. high too. I was I was hoping that it would be... Like a little middle? bit higher, but yeah, I know. Surprised that it was it was as high as it was. Yeah, yeah. Because usually, by the time people come into sober up or recovery or whatever, mm -hmm. they've burned so many bridges, right? That we burned we've burned so many bridges that there's mm -hmm. like I work with way more people that don't have supportive family than do. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. it's probably reflective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sad. Mm -hmm. it's sad. Yeah, it really. Sad is. feel to look into. Yeah, it is. Um, so the next theme was um, theme three, reasons to stop usage. Um, I found that this theme was, uh, this was a very cool theme to me. Mm -hmm. um, in the interview, I didn't, I didn't touch on this at all. It, was, it wasn't one of the questions that came up, so people kind of brought this up by themselves. So I mm -hmm. thought it was very interesting that it came up anyways. Um, and there was only one sub-theme that emerged here, and it was that participants did not have any choice but to stop. 80% um, of participants spoke to this, so again, very, quite a high number. So it mm -hmm. must have been a very important step, especially considering it wasn't really brought up in the interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one was uh, helpful approaches to recovery. So um, this was defined as any approach to recovery that um, participants found helpful that's been considered either controversial or unconventional. Okay. So we have the use of the 12 steps in here. Um, that's I considered of, controversial, eh? Yeah, when I spoke to the first participant that I spoke to said that it was a very low success rate. Mm -hmm. And a lot of um, studies that I looked at, like I didn't have any studies that brought up the 12 steps at all. So that's yeah. kind of why I considered it controversial. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, again, that's what I, that's what I quoted it as. But yeah. Yeah. No, but that's interesting. I I, I, yeah. I haven't heard it that way because I'm in the community, right? So it's, yeah, definitely. You definitely don't hear the community tell themselves they're controversial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's um. I have been I've, I have been to some twelve step meetings myself, and I found them to be, I found them to be quite helpful. Mm -hmm. I think it's nice to be surrounded by a community like that. But yeah. I also think that one of the reasons that it can be considered controversial is because it's a little bit difficult to get yourself to something like that. Yeah. Especially if you run into a different support program beforehand. Mm -hmm. So 
Well, and, and mm -hmm. also, if the percentages aren't high in terms of success, mm -hmm. a lot of people who aren't familiar with the idea might say, mm -hmm. well, why would I bother? Yeah. Right? Because I don't know what the success rate is now, actually, but... Um, I looked it up and I got I got a couple different numbers yeah. that ranged from 12% to 60%, I think. Depending on who you ask. Yeah. yeah. But I think, um, I think one of the reasons that it's considered a low success rate is because whenever we're looking at success rate, we look at relapses. Yeah. But one of the one of the things about the 12 step is that you still come back after you relapse. Yeah. So that's why you can't really tell. I don't tell. know if it's got a very good, a very good name in like the, whenever we're looking at doing research and stuff yeah. like that, they don't look at that because they want to, they want to see the least amount of relapse possible. Yeah. But it's part of reality. Yeah. Most people relapse. It's part of recovery. Yeah. So I, I think, I don't think it's controversial personally, but just Going I, through all the studies and having it not come up. Was, yeah, yeah, I could see, I could see it being controversial, actually. Um, mm -hmm. But, but in different ways, maybe just in terms of the not only the spiritual component of it, mm -hmm. which might be um, controversial to lots of people today, because I know that that's not necessarily where everyone's going. Like, not, yeah. the the direction of our society is not towards a spiritual end. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> or at least it seems that nowadays. way, anyway, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, to me, that would make it a little bit controversial. Mm -hmm. Just that element of you, you require to believe in something in order for this to work. Yeah. Right. Like if yeah, someone was looking sense, yeah. at it specifically like that, but mm -hmm. I mean, I don't look at it like that, but that, that's kind of how, if I was trying to play devil's advocate, I might see that. Yeah, right? Is, definitely. And all, not to mention the fact that it's self-motivated. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So you're not be very really difficult. accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no, no. Um, and then the next sub theme here, and this is again in um, helpful approaches to recovery, was the use of harm reduction. So this was defined as participants identifying any harm reduction approach. So this is either swapping one substance for one for a different one that's considered more healthy and mm -hmm. not a problematic substance or continuing use of a substance at a healthy amount. Yeah. Yeah. So we okay. had um, we had 40 percent of participants do this. So. Mm -hmm seem to be quite helpful. And I, I, I also think um, one participant mentioned, I wanted to mention this, um, they said that if they were to define their recovery by being completely clean, that they would consistently not meet those standards and then they would feel like a failure and yeah. that would feed into their addiction. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was I thought it was neat that some people were able to come to a place where they could hold yeah. themselves accountable in a much different way than, mm -hmm. than others can. That's interesting too, because that just of what you were talking about before with the low success rates mm -hmm. in terms of the twelve-step groups themselves. Mm -hmm. Sorry, see, I just had my brain shut down as I'm talking. <laughs> like, well, what were you, what did you just say? The yeah, you just said, and my brain went doot, 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 and then just shut down. Um, that was oh the um the harm reduction approach. Yes. Um, if I were to define my recovery by being completely clean, I would consistently not meet those standards and feel like a failure yeah. which would feed into my addiction. Yeah, which would also could potentially make the 12-step groups look like controversial because they're mm -hmm. all about abstinence, yeah. which is weird. They're all about abstinence, yet lots of people relapse chronically, mm -hmm. and yet abstinence is the goal, mm -hmm. right? And I can see how that just demoralizes people if you can't stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that would in itself make it controversial, I think, a little yeah. bit. 
Anyway, I, sir. No, no. Um, you've I, done a really good job here. My brain's <laughs> like firing all kinds of crazy shit. So. No, this was uh, <laughs> going through this paper. I had I had such a hard time condensing it because as mm. I was writing, I was getting all fired up and yeah. I just kept going. Can I can I ask yeah. you like personally? So yes. you don't have to answer anything you don't want to. Thank you. But, <laughs> yeah, of course. But I, I'm I'm wondering like because you have a personal connection to it. Mm-hmm. So how do you find the, the the data that you've discovered that you mm-hmm. can at the end of the paper how did you find that like coincides with what you've been through um i found that speaking with everybody i felt like as they were telling their stories i was hearing a lot of stuff that i had been through and mm-hmm. not exact situations mm-hmm. but a lot of those themes coming up yeah and after i put all of the themes down and i looked at what everybody used it was it was very similar to my own was experiences yeah. yeah which was okay. it was cool to see no doubt yeah, yeah. that's kind of why i asked i mean <laughs> yeah. obviously you never have to share what you don't want to but mm-hmm. yeah it's it's because it's totally different it's, it's different research paper if you're not also recovering or recovered however yeah. you look at that right yeah it's a very different thing yeah so it must have been pretty like hitting you home pretty good yeah it really did and it was yeah. the it was the first time that i've ever gotten to be this connected to something that i was doing in school yeah. so and we also had um we had peer review authenticity checks so oh, one wow. of my peers that i i had never i had never spoken to or was friends with prior to this uh sat down and they looked at all of my codes and went through them to make sure that I wasn't missing anything. And then we also had a check done by our the TA that was running the lab mm-hmm. that we did this in. And um, yeah, so there was other people looking at it to make sure that you weren't missing anything. So it was very it was very neat to be able to be this connected and have that own bias and that personal experience yeah. without knowing yeah. that I was kind of taking away or putting into the paper things that mm-hmm. didn't need to be there. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah it was, it was cool. good. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so sorry, the next theme is clinical mechanisms. Mm. So this is just um, anything that was used in a clinical setting like dialectical behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so only one sub-theme emerged here, and this was use of clinical support. So um, 60% of participants utilized this. They either defined mm. their counselor as important, the use of dialectical behavioral therapy, et cetera. And then um, our last theme here is uh, barriers. So this is uh, this was anything that got in the way of participants' recovery, um, and this was not something that I asked about because I'm not I'm obviously not a trained professional, so mm-hmm. I couldn't get too deep into the into anything too negative because I I don't yeah. I didn't really have a way of responding in a professional manner. Mm-hmm. So these were things that came up without me asking, and 40% of participants touched on this. So again, it was very cool to see that. As people were recalling their journeys, one of the important things for them was seeing things that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's important for a lot of people who are going through recovery to know that part of recovery is bumping into that into walls. Work, yeah, yeah, and finding what works and what doesn't yeah. work. It's a it's a journey. Um so I here we're just gonna talk about now how all of these are kind of connected and how some of the prior research that was found was reflected here mm-hmm. and how some new things were found, which was which was cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So barriers was not connected to the to the other themes in any meaningful way because it was things that got in the way. Mm-hmm. Whereas the rest of the themes were all things that had helped people. Yeah. All of the participants used at least two different themes that had emerged together. Yeah. So that was interesting because one of the papers talked about using multiple, multiple. methods at the same time as being the most effective way. Yeah. Um that's what I've found. Yeah. yeah. Multiple more, methods the more, is the best. Yeah. The more, <laughs> more methods, the merrier. better, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we also talked about how social supports was helpful. Mm-hmm. That was touched on a lot by participants. 
um, clinical mechanisms was touched on by participants. Um, harm reduction was touched on by participants. But um, the only thing that wasn't touched on in previous studies, anything that I could find, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't required to do this, but I did go to do this just from my own personal mm-hmm. curiosity. I did a little bit of digging and I couldn't really find anything about this. Um, no previous research that I had found had touched on why somebody would make the decision to stop. Mm-hmm. And again, 80% of participants talked about their reasons to stop usage without it being brought up. So it was it was an incredibly important step. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, that was very important. The bottom is is very important for us to remember. Yeah. 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 And um, no, I think uh, we I had I had a lot of very cool, um, cool quotes from participants that I was going through. And it's just it was interesting to see people's stories. And I think speaking from personal experience as well, you can't really stop if you're not ready to stop. So um, as part of the um, as part of the study, we had to talk about the different implications and then ways that it could be utilized in the future so mm-hmm. why is why is my research important what can i do with my research rather than just yeah. here's my paper look at yeah. what i did um so one of the things that i really wanted to talk about that we've already touched on that was important that came from the paper was that everybody walks a different path mm-hmm. so while um the use of uh the 12-step program came up um it came up a few times actually mm-hmm. there were different participants who used different forms of the 12-step so one participant used the traditional 12-step program mm-hmm. and another one used uh, the 12-step program with um, through an Indigenous lens. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. it was it was so interesting. Like the medicine wheel of the 12 yeah, steps? Yeah, the medicine wheel of the 12 steps okay. was, what, was uh, what we were kind of talking about. Mm-hmm. So it was neat that uh, for one participant, the traditional way worked, and for another participant, a different way worked. So mm-hmm. I think that, again, it's important to remember as you're going through your own journey that something that works for somebody is not going to work for you just because it already worked for them. Yeah, that's an important thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an important fact because I think it is a fact. Yeah, right? it is. It is. Right? Like just because it works for me or you, like it's not going to necessarily work for Darcy. Exactly. Right? He doesn't have any hair. Because <laughs> like, we're obviously talking about conditioning. Shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's because I'm beard envious. You know I am. <laughs> totally. He just smiles and nods. Yeah, it's because you don't have a beard. Yeah. <laughs> I just felt like we weren't paying attention to you, man. That's all. All right. <laughs> um, and uh, sorry, another thing that I wanted to talk about was um, this was just my own personal ponderings. One of the ways that some of what we, some of the ga- data that was gathered from this uh, small scale study could be utilized in the future mm-hmm. is that. Um, we talk about how people need to be ready to make a change and they need to have a reason to make a change in order mm-hmm. to make it. Um, there's something called the trans-theoretical model of change. So it's five different stages that a person can be at when they're thinking about making a change in their life. Okay. Um, the first stage is called the pre-contemplation stage. And mm-hmm. if somebody's at this stage, they're not ready to make a change. So this is something that's been... Um, I learned about it actually in a health psychology class. It's something that you use when you would talk to if I was a doctor and I was talking to a patient who was smoking cigarettes Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, have you, you know, considered quitting cigarettes? If they say no, then they're not ready to make a change and there's no point in me having a further conversation Mm -hmm. with them. Um, Then the next step is contemplation. So once you ask that question, someone knows that they can come back to you and say, yeah, you know what, I've I've been thinking about it. And you can give them the information that they need. And then once they see it, they know whether they're ready to start Mm -hmm. into the third step or whether they're ready to kind of go back to pre-contemplation okay. and not want to make a change anymore. So I was thinking that having this trans-theoretical model of change could be useful for people who are 
working with populations that are at risk for mm. um, for addictions or who are largely addicted. Mm-hmm. So people working maybe at the drop-in center could have knowledge yeah. of the trans theoretical model of change and now know how to mm-hmm. bring up the conversation and how to kind of back off when it's not an appropriate time to be bringing this up. So, mm. yeah. That's fair. Because if someone says, you know what, I'm not inter- interested, mm-hmm. that's a good time to stop talking to them mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, and it's if I give you a pamphlet for what mm-hmm. I think is going to work for you, you're going to toss it in the garbage totally. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but if you know that you can come and talk to me because I brought it up, then yeah, because you brought it up and were respectful about it when I ignored you. That, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, then you know I, you can come back. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I was thinking that would be kind of a cool way to to utilize some of this information mm-hmm. outside of the scope of just having a paper of it. So yeah, for sure, that's awesome. Yeah. So that was that was pretty much what I found in the paper and yeah. kind of a little rundown of it. So would you mind telling us about a little bit about yourself? Like where yeah, you, definitely. How, how you got to that point of, of even wanting to study that? Yeah. Um, so I was, um, I started having problems with addictions when I was, uh, when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a program. It was, um, it was through ADAC and it was, okay. um, it was an outpatient program. It was suggested to me by a counselor that was through ADAC. Um, and I, I had a wonderful time there. Mm-hmm. We did. We did a lot of really awesome activities. There was a, I went during the summer, so we got to do this really cool thing where we went on like a four day long canoe trip and Mm. we camped in between and stuff. So I learned a lot of different ways to kind of do healthy things that weren't part Mm. of my addiction. And I learned how to kind of get out of it. Yeah. So after that, I still, I still struggled for quite some time after it wasn't a three month quick, quick fix. Um, but after that, I didn't, I didn't have any interest in school. I was never, I was mm-hmm. never really academically inclined and I went into the workforce. Um, I was still seeing um, the same counselor outpatient at this time. And I started working and I'm not, I'm not pushing school on anybody by saying this, but mm-hmm. I found myself at a dead end job and I didn't yeah. really know how to get out. Um, at this time, my mom had been seeing different, uh, you know, those little postings on Facebook for addictions mm-hmm. support workers oh yeah so like yeah little ads yeah from yeah. cdi college yeah, yeah. yeah so she was seeing those and she was like hey this would be this would mm-hmm. be kind of a cool idea and i kind of just kept ignoring her kept ignoring her mm-hmm. and when i hit that point in my job where i i wasn't happy i didn't want to go to work i wasn't making enough money and mm-hmm. I, there was no room for me to grow yeah. i started kind of thinking about it i went and talked to the people at cdi college and they told me what i could do with the diploma program there mm-hmm. and what i could do was very it was very small scale in comparison to what I wanted to do. When I started opening my mind, I was like, oh, I want to I wanna do for somebody what these people did for me yeah. when I was a teenager. I wanted to work exactly in the same program in mm-hmm. ADAC. I remembered having such a good time, and that's that was what I was kind of set on. Mm-hmm. Um, because I wasn't very academically inclined, I, uh, I couldn't go right into university. Mm-hmm. So my sneaky way of getting out of doing upgrading was to go to college first in general studies. So I moved to Lethbridge for a year did a year of college there, and then I transferred over mm-hmm. to the University of Calgary that way. Um, it, uh, it wasn't very sneaky because I actually did need math, so <laughs> <laughs> I wound up still having to do some upgrading. And I did, uh, I did struggle a little bit with some, with some stuff that, that I would have not struggled with had I mm-hmm. just done the upgrading. But yeah. anyways, that's how I ended up at uh, the University of Calgary. And I started out my studies wanting to work with people with addictions. Mm-hmm. And now that I've kind of progressed in my studies and I've I've learned so many different things. I have no idea what I want what to you do anymore. Do, right? Yeah. So yeah. That's, well, that's uh, that's very cool. Um, how long have you been at the UFC then? Uh, I'm in my fourth year right now. Fourth year. Oh yeah. wow. So, and so fourth year, you don't know what you want to do. 
Yeah, there are was. You, are you a psych major? <laughs> yes, yeah, psych yeah. major. Yeah. Okay. Are you planning on going for your master's or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was. Um, there was there was a point where I almost I almost went into philosophy. Every time you learn a little bit of new information, you really grab oh, a grab a hold of it. Philosophy's hard to avoid, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting class. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, now that I'm kind of settled down a little bit and in my fourth year, I'm thinking about me either doing a master's in counseling mm -hmm. or maybe going into law. I was looking at, I don't necessarily want to be a lawyer, but yeah. it's, uh, it's, it would open up so many different doors and allow mm -hmm. me to do so many different things. But mm -hmm. as I've seen right now, having that so many different options is a little bit difficult in its, in its own sense. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Almost like a, what do they call that? <laughs> An embarrassment of riches. Oh. Yeah, I think it's an embarrassment of riches. I like that. I've never. Heard that. I don't have it either. I just heard people talk about it when they get it. Mm -hmm. They're like, "Oh, it's an embarrassment of riches," and they sit back and sip their pina coladas. <laughs> oh, that's um, funny. That, yeah, I don't know where that came from, but um, that is so cool. Like, I think you can't. I don't think you can go wrong trying to help others. Yeah, right. I don't I think agree. you can go in. I, I don't think it's a bad direction. I agree. <laughs> you know? So that's very cool. So you probably had to take a stats course then. Yes. And that's why you were complaining about the math. Oh, yeah. Because right? those are terrible. <laughs> that's like, that is what exactly a, what I was talking yeah. about. Like what a yeah. terrible course. Like every person I've ever heard, myself included, it's like, jeez, <laughs> it's like you need trauma therapy after you get out of stats courses, man, because it's terrible. I was, um, I was very fortunate. I had just the most outstanding professor ever mm -hmm. i i think i spent more time with her than i did in my own home that semester yeah so, of her, yeah. her teaching you helping you yeah and yeah. going to her office being confused sending her emails yeah. so she was she was phenomenal I, if i wouldn't have had her i would have that's awesome i would have curled up and yeah. cried I've got a good, well you I mean you probably had to do that anyway because it was a stats oh, course i did <laughs> at some point in time you're curled up crying going oh god but yeah, um, i would just remember sucking my thumb in the <laughs> in the fetal position, like I don't like math. <laughs> but um, fortunately, though, that uh, that class is what got me interested in taking the qualitative mm -hmm. class because I was I was looking at either taking the quantitative or the qualitative, mm -hmm. and the quantitative is where all of the the stats come from. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> so I ended up in this class, and I ended up I ended up just loving it, yeah. and being able to actually talk to people one on one yeah. and ask them questions and get their own experience mm -hmm. and stuff like that. It was, it was great. Yeah. And I don't mean to shit on the stats courses because like, honestly, you can, you can learn so much. Oh yeah. And we need it. Yeah, it's we do. Just not, yeah. not for us. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. But you know what? The one thing about research that I've found fascinating is that I, I could be completely disinterested in it until I start reading the project. And then I say, whoa, mm -hmm. wait a minute. This is actually quite interesting. You yeah. know, what people are trying to do mm -hmm. in terms of that neurology, like we were talking about before, like trying to map the brain and, and figure out like how unique those brains really are, right? Like, oh, yeah. And, and we're just scratching the surface, I think, now. Yeah. You would know better than me, but because mm -hmm. you're in school right now. And those of us who finished school a while ago, we're pretty dumb now. So we're just, <laughs> no. we're banking on the fact. Well, I'm, I'm going to speak for myself. I'm yeah. pretty, I feel like I, I'm pretty ignorant compared to the, what's available right now. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty cool. It, is. it yeah. is. Well, when you're, when you're separated, you're not going out of your way to read like a journal article for. <sighs> I didn't go out of my way to read fun. anything for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the trouble, right? Yeah. Cause when I was, yeah, first in college, I, I was drinking so much. I don't even remember. 
I mean, I remember doing a paper on a on we had to do a paper on a mental illness and the, and then schizophrenia was the one I did it on. Mm-hmm. And I made the paper up, the whole thing. I didn't look at a book because I knew people with schizophrenia. So I made the paper up and I got an A plus on this paper. Did you? Yeah. And I remember thinking like, college is going to be easy, but it was not easy. <laughs> I just happened to, I happened to know way more about schizophrenia than I thought I did. Because That's pretty neat. It was really neat. Yeah. It was either really neat or I have schizophrenia. And <laughs> And I was writing a paper about myself. Yeah. Um, I've only been diagnosed with like severe depression, so not schizophrenia. Uh, not yet. God, there's just so much to uncover with this life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So out of all the work you've done so far, mm-hmm. and do you have like do you have like a secret desire where you'd like to work? Like what you'd like to do for work? Um I don't know about you, but I used to dream about doing stuff when I was still in school. Yeah. I I've had the opportunity to 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 have a couple of different um a couple of different jobs in the field. Mm-hmm. So I've worked um I've done play therapy with kids who have disabilities, largely autism. Wow. And I've also done um I had a really cool opportunity to run indigenous based uh camps for at risk youth. That was that oh. was very cool too. Um and after kind of getting a taste for the field and and seeing everything i i don't have any secret desires everything that i've done i've i've wound up loving i haven't there hasn't been anything that i've really disliked so so there isn't like a dream job for you in your mind not that you don't have to tell us what it is because i know that sometimes people are like i'm not gonna tell you i'm just gonna do it and i'm gonna say (laughs) no honestly no i am i'm kind of Everything that I've everything that I've done so far has almost kind of fallen in my lap, and it's mm. just it's been wonderful. So I'm letting kind of nice. just letting the wind cool. the wind guide me at this point, which might not might not be the best idea, but it's worked so far. So mm. I yeah, everything I've done I've really liked. So I haven't yeah. I don't I think because I've been fortunate enough to like have those yeah. experiences, I haven't really come up with anything specific in mind. Just mm. just been enjoying the ride. That's so cool. I mean, seriously, like, honestly, I, I don't, I don't know that the, the age gaps are like, you can notice, right? Like the mm-hmm. intelligence of your, how old are you? 25. Yeah. Like the intelligence of your generation is, it's far exceeding mine. Thank like, you. <laughs> well, no, but it is. It's just that we get so stuck in our heads. I get this like, um, ignorant anger comes up when I'm ignorant. When I recognize how ignorant I am, all of a sudden my brain goes, whoa, whoa. How dare you point out how ignorant we are over here? Um, and it gets like really, really lame, right? But then as you process through it, what I realize is that we just didn't have the same access to information, but now we do. Mm-hmm. So we got to catch up, right? Like, and catch up mm-hmm. and, and let, let younger people kind of guide us a bit mm-hmm. with this, with the tech and stuff. Well, I think we have, we have a lot more, we have a lot more things that we can look at that aren't as taboo now mm. as they were then so we have a lot more access to more information because of that yeah 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 and that's a great thing like there's mm-hmm. there's more conversations around suicide around mental illness around mm-hmm. addiction around a difficult subject matter that's a good way to co- describe it taboo yeah because it was taboo yeah definitely and it's you yeah. can't really you can't really learn anything if you're not allowed to talk about it yeah. right so no same thing with cannabis eh like yeah. over the we couldn't study it. They couldn't do anything with it because it was illegal. Mm-hmm. So as long as it's illegal, you can't approach it like it's medicine. Exactly. Yeah. Same with other plant-based stuff too. But um, that's so interesting. It is. 
I am um, going off of that. I I have a I have a thought that there might be like a rise coming up soon about using um hallucinogens mm. in clinical settings just because they they can be so helpful and they are getting yeah. a lot less taboo and a lot more acceptable to mm-hmm. kind of look at those methods whereas before yeah. it would have been unheard of. Well, we never heard conversations about plant-based medicine, right? Like yeah. of any kind. And psilocybin exactly. is apparently really effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it. And I believe I believe that there's just being a guy that's been having prescri- prescribed a pharmaceutical grade antidepressant for for a few years now, mm-hmm. there's got to be different ways to do it. Like there's just got to yeah, be, right? definitely. Because going through the process um, of getting a med was mm-hmm. painful, like literally physically painful and yeah. um, painful for a period of time to try to adjust to that med. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm like, obviously that makes me think there's got to be a different way to do that. Well, and, and God forbid it doesn't work and it's just as painful to come off of it. And okay, it. now we're going to try a different one. You yeah. ready? Like, yeah. Have you ever been involved with people who've had to take meds? So, um, I've, I've had to, I've had, had my to take fair them? share. Yeah. Okay. So I, um, yeah, I struggle, I struggle with, um, with anxiety and I struggled mm-hmm. with depression in the past as well. And it's, yeah. it's a very painful process going through right? pharmaceuticals and whatnot. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, it just puts the body through so much like hardship, right? And exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I'm just grateful that um, I'm excited for for their paper, and I'm grateful that you're doing this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for and thank you for what time are we at? Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. That's healthy. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Um, I I just wanted to say thank you so much for letting me share this paper. It was just mm-hmm. it was something that I wrote for a class, so I appreciate being able to share it and one of the things that i have been wanting to do is make sure that i'm giving what i find back to the people who need it so mm-hmm. hopefully there's somebody listening who is struggling who hears something that they needed to out of this instead of it yeah. sitting in my hands where i can't really do anything with it so yeah thank you, you, you very much for allowing me to share this oh you're so welcome <laughs> um it is like important because you mentioned a couple of topics that we talk about quite regularly on the on the podcast but mm-hmm. out there it's it's almost like when you're in public with people, you can't have the same conversations that you can in here. I yeah. don't know why that is, but probably because in here we feel safe and, and it is safe. Yeah. But harm reduction. You mentioned harm reduction and you mentioned mm-hmm. multiple methods of, of um, intervention, I guess, would be yeah. a, for lack of a better word. What are, what are your thoughts on harm, harm reduction? Um, I think I don't think that harm reduction is for everyone. Yeah. I think that you need to come to... A healthy place to start using harm reduction because mm-hmm. it is very easy to become addicted to something new yeah so i think that once once you feel that you're at the place where you're able to do that mm-hmm. i i think harm reduction is great mm-hmm. but um again it's it's also hard to gauge when you're at that place and yeah. again drawing from personal experience i i have been at that place before where i'm mm-hmm. like oh i'm ready and i'm saying i'm ready because i'm not ready yeah so yeah and that's right you just never know until you actually know yeah right and i think i think harm reduction is best explored with if you have like a counselor or if you have a support person or somebody Mm -hmm. that you can talk to it's best explored with somebody who will give you a kick in the ass if you need it yeah exactly right uh, some sort of guide to be there with you yeah um, just in case things aren't going as well as you think they are Right? Yeah. yeah. Or if you're not ready, somebody who's not scared to say, hey, you're you're not ready for this. It's a bad idea. Yeah. 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 Good call. And I, I appreciate that. Like I, I, we don't talk about, like I said, out, out there in the small community that I'm a part of, sometimes mm-hmm. it seems very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, that's just one of the communities I'm involved with. But that community itself is very 
against harm reduction stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so all harm reduction talk kind of gets filtered out of the fellowship and the congregation, or the Mm -hmm. not congregation, but the meetings Mm -hmm. and stuff like that because um, it's just got such a bad name, right? The harm reduction. Because really people think of harm reduction, they think, oh, you're just trading one thing for another. So you really aren't getting any better. But what what changed my mind about harm reduction, because when I was Mm -hmm. first sober, I was very abstinence based Mm -hmm. and it was black and white. But that's because that's what I needed. It had nothing to do with anybody else. It only had to do with what I needed um, because I was so desperate, right? And selfish. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll just call it what it was. Mm -hmm. Desperate and selfish and and ignorant. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I couldn't see what you just described in terms of harm reduction where you could walk with somebody Mm -hmm. and be like, okay, look, like, this is what I'm doing. I'm not doing heroin, mm-hmm. but yes, I am. Or this person is um, supplementing or not supplementing because you, you can't supplement anything for heroin. It's pretty good by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing else that's like it. But you, you could, I, I've known people that go from hard drugs to marijuana or mm-hmm. hard drugs to um, microdosing psilocybin or yeah. things that, things that have, literally save their life yeah but nobody talks about it it's it's super important to talk about because we look at if i'm struggling with addiction i can go see my doctor Mm -hmm. and my doctor can prescribe me something and that's going to do probably more damage on my body potentially than than taking cannabis for example but again you have to you have to have that somebody Mm -hmm. to keep you in check and you have to be able to hold yourself accountable so that you're not getting to a place where now you have you have a new problem because yeah. you can become addicted to anything especially if you're already struggling with mm-hmm. substance dependence yeah and much mm-hmm. like when you when you're on antidepressants or whatever you might be on, a person might be on for their uh specific illness mm-hmm. um you're basically walking with a doctor and telling a doctor how you're doing so it would make sense that if you're taking other kinds of medicine whatever the medicine is mm-hmm. that you would have someone you could walk with to talk to about it, right? And to make sure that you're not using too much or you're not using enough or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I just, you know what changed my mind was I started mm-hmm. doing funerals. I started mm-hmm. officiating funerals for for kids that have, have overdosed or taken mm-hmm. their lives because they couldn't get sober. And oh my goodness. the longer I, I did those and came in contact with the family members, the more that black and white rigidity was just chipped away until it was gone. Yeah. Because I realized, without word of a lie, some of those kids could be alive if someone had said, why don't we try cannabis mm-hmm. instead of cocaine? Or not, it's not that simple. And yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're out there, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's that simple. Cocaine, mm-hmm. cannabis, it's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But why, see, it would be, some people would say it would be absolutely irresponsible of me to suggest mm-hmm. such a thing, right? Yeah. And the reality is, I think it's irresponsible of me to ignore it, right? To ignore the possibility that it could help someone. And mm-hmm. and so that started to shift. And I'm grateful you're doing the work and talking about how, for your own life as well as others, how mm-hmm. it might be more beneficial to have multiple avenues of help versus mm-hmm. just one. Mm-hmm. Versus banking all your, putting all your money into one potential success i completely agree right yeah and i mean go sorry go ahead um i also also speaking about harm reduction too i think it's 
I think for some people, they, they do need to be completely sober and mm -hmm. having pure sobriety is what's important. But I know for me personally, I don't know if I, I find it very empowering to know that I can, I can go out with my friends to a bar and I can have a drink and not mm -hmm. get to a point where I'm completely spiraled out of control. And that's, yeah. everything is in the trash like mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and it's it's uh it is empowering to be able to do that and i know for myself i don't think that i would ever be able to define my own recovery by being completely abstinent off of absolutely everything yeah so because like and yeah and, and would that even be necessary yeah and especially because i know for some for some people that i've talked to and for myself having struggled in my teenage years it would be i it would be difficult for me now to be 25 and have to forego absolutely everything mm -hmm. because I I had some bad decisions and I had some stuff going on in my life yeah. at that time. But I also know that I can't I can't go overboard because that is who I am. Yeah. So and so you're careful. Yes. And so you, <laughs> Very yeah, careful. Well, so you monitor it. Yeah. And you probably do you have do you have a partner? Yes, I do. Yeah. And yeah. so does your partner help you kind of moderate and kind of move through some of that stuff or um we haven't um no, not really. Yeah. We um I've I came to a place of uh of sobriety well before we had uh we had met, but I have oh, I have okay. talked with uh yeah. I've talked with him about it quite a bit and he's he's mm -hmm. very understanding. I think that if I did need help monitoring it, yeah, I would be able to talk to him and I don't think that I would want to be with somebody who I felt I couldn't mm -hmm. get that hand from if I needed it. Yeah. yeah. That's important for sure. Yeah. Um oh, I was gonna say something that oh. <laughs> This is apparently, this is like, I get reminded all the time that it's because of trauma that the brain just stops thinking. Could <laughs> that <be>. makes so <laughs> much sense. I'm like, all those years of, yeah, of all the different things that happened and that I happened to, mm -hmm. no wonder my brain does it. <laughs> yeah. I can't even get mad at it either. I'm just like, okay, I had it coming. Yeah. Yeah. Blank spots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what I was going to say was it's refreshing um, listening to you because you're not wrapped up in the fact that you had difficulty as an addict, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like it. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. what, what it, what's coming across to me, and maybe you picked up on this too, is kind of like the, cause we listen to a lot of people talking, right? And yeah. of course he listens to me too, but <laughs> um, I, I just get a sense that it's not your only identity, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not the bulk of your identity. If anything, it's probably, right-sized mm -hmm. within your identity, right? Yeah. One of the components of you, not the main component of you. Yeah, I um, I actually struggled. I struggled for a while with it being the main component of me. And then mm -hmm. I, I kind of had to muddle my way through that. And then I did struggle for quite some time with having it not be a component of my identity at all and something mm -hmm. that I wanted to kind of sweep under the rug. Yeah. And initially when I did the study, I spoke with my professor and I said that I... I was talking to him and I was like, you know what? I don't really, I don't really want to include my own personal experiences in my reflexivity statement mm -hmm. because I just don't want to. And then I was thinking about it after and I was like, it's pretty hypocritical of me <laughs> to sit down with five people and get them to tell me their journey and not share that this mm -hmm. is something that I've been through as well. Obviously the, the interviews were about the people and I, yeah. I didn't share that, but they were welcome to take a snippet of the paper if mm -hmm. they wanted to. So it's it's taken it's taken me quite a few years, but I have been able to come to a place where it's it's not the bulk of my identity, but yeah. it's not something that I hide either. That's so it's just there. <laughs> that's so cool, but it's so human because mm -hmm. we're, we're humans, right? We have yeah. so many parts of us. Yeah, 
And the one, the one part isn't any bigger than the other, so long mm -hmm. as we address it. So long yeah, as exactly. we address the one part, it can stay right-sized in that spot, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Thanks so much, Eve. Oh, not a problem. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Please stay tuned every Wednesday as we air another episode. Thank you for your time. And please, if you're in trouble, reach out. If you need to contact us at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca or you can look for us on Facebook under Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you again for tuning in. Please stay tuned for upcoming groups, activities, and podcasts.